the king of the Yavanas, could also refuse to accept Kalakanya's daughter of time, but he considered the request due to the order of Naradamuni. Thus, he accepted Kalakanya in a different way. In other words, the injunctions of Naradamuni, or the path of devotional service, can be accepted by anyone within the three worlds, and certainly by the king of the Yavanas. Lord Chaitanya himself requested everyone to preach the cult of bhakti yoga all over the world, in every village and town. Preachers in the Krishna consciousness movement have actually experienced that even the Yavanas and Mlechas have taken to spiritual life on the strength of Narada Muni's Pancharatrika Vidhi. When mankind follows the disciplic succession as recommended by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, everyone throughout the world will benefit. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prasaya Vintale, Srimati Bhakti Vedanta, Swami Niti Namane, Namaste Saraswati Deve, Gaurabhani Pachanche, Nirvishesha Shunyavani Pastachai. So in yesterday's purport, um, the verse says, little piece of it, since Kalakanya, the daughter of time, was deputed by Narada Muni to offer herself to Yavanaraja, the king of the Yavanas could not refuse her, and that all transactions must be performed in light of the Shastric injunctions which are confirmed by great sages like Narada Muni. And Prabhupada explains in that purport that as stated by Narottam Dastakur, Saru Shastra Guru Vakya Chitete Kariya Aikya, one should follow the principles of saintly persons, scriptures, and the spiritual master, and in this way be assured of attaining success in life. Now in today's verse, Kalakanya, the daughter of time, is offering her service to the king of the Yavanas because she is in distress. Often people uh, turn to God because they are in distress. In the previous verse, or in a previous verse, Prabhupada explained that because a devotee rigidly follows the instructions of Narada Muni, as outlined in the Narada Pantratrika Vidhi, as well as the Bhagavata Vidhi, they will have no fear of old age, disease, and death. And that although a devotee may appear to grow old, they are not subjected to defeat because they are not afraid to die, knowing that after leaving this material body, they will go back home, back to Godhead. So, there are a couple of points uh, that Prabhupada gives in the purport of today's verse. The first point is that uh, no one is qualified or disqualified from taking shelter of and accepting the instructions of Narada Muni, as outlined in the Panchara Trikaviti. And what this means is that regardless of a person's material position in life, their social or economic uh, status, whether they are sinful or pious, whether they have a particular nationality or ethnicity or culture, everyone can become elevated to the position of a Vaishnava simply by taking up these nine processes of devotional service. Even if you take up only one of the nine processes of devotional service, uh, you can become a lover of God. One's heart will be filled with joy. So these nine processes, as most of you know, they include hearing, chanting, remembering, serving, serving, becoming a friend, and so on. 
So in other words, no matter how fallen we are, or how limited a person's capacity to serve Krishna or even understand philosophy, they will steadily make pro- uh, progress in devotional life if they just hear and chant and remember and try to do a little service. Sometimes uh, we hear that, uh, I've heard, in particular in India, where uh, you, you person, person, person first has to take birth in a family of Vaishnavas or Hindus before they can uh, practice Krishna consciousness. But this uh, purport and these uh, statements of Prabhupada, they uh, disagree with that. They would say that's not, that is not true. Uh, a person may begin practicing spiritual progress, even becoming liberated immediately if they take to devotional life. I have uh, the great fortune uh, of riding prisoners uh, in America for the past six years. And I'm, uh, I got connected through the ISKCON prison ministry. And uh, although some of these prisoners that I arrived to have been robbers and uh, cocaine and heroin addicts or even murderers, uh, they're doomed. Many of them are doomed to live for the rest of their life in prison. They have no access, uh, access to devotees, or, except for on writing them letters. They can't come and worship the beautiful deities. They don't get to sit in a lecture where someone is talking, answering their questions. Uh, they don't get to share prasadam with uh, people. They have absolutely no facility for Krishna consciousness outside of the, the chanting of the holy name and uh, reading Srila Prabhupada's books, particularly Srimad Bhagavatam and the Bhagavad Gita. And still, this is so powerful, just these two processes of the nine processes, it has the power to transform even without all the wonderful facilities that we have. Uh, One of the prisoners I correspond with regularly, he starts his day taking a piece of toilet paper and dabbing it with a little drop of water from the sink in the corner of his cell. And if you know anything about prison, you'll know that the cell is about two feet by, I mean, you real literally, it's a place to lay down, maybe a little bit of walking. And so he takes a piece of toilet paper and he wets it and he wipes his whole cell with this toilet paper just to clean it because he knows in order to prepare to chant, he needs to create an environment. And after he has cleaned his whole cell with, with his toilet paper, he gets a towel and he puts it over the toilet seat in the corner of his cell. And on top of that little towel, on top of the toilet, he puts some pictures of Krishna. And uh, he now has an altar, which was a toilet. Now it is an altar of Krishna. And he will sit there for hours and he will chant the Hare Krishna mantra. And when he's tired of chanting, or when he's chanted a minimum of 16 rounds, often more, he will get out his Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam and he will read it. Uh, people in prison are practically living on top of each other. You don't have the luxury of getting away from a cellmate who may not be very interested in Krishna consciousness. So it's kind of transformed. If you study the lives of saints and sages, you will see often they live in a cave or they'll live in a little hermitage in order to avoid non-devotee association and to have full focus. So I like to think of these prisoners transforming into sages whose prison cell becomes a little hermitage where they can uh, focus and study Krishna. And this particular prisoner who wipes his 
uh, prison cell with toilet paper, uh, he, he uh, has given up meat, fish, and eggs, which is not an easy thing when you don't have much food uh, that is uh, vegetarian in a prison. In fact, in order for a prisoner to be able to be allowed to get vegetarian food, we have to send a letter to the prison uh, saying, this, this person is a bona fide Vaishnava devotee. He's practicing this religion just like Jews get kosher food. This devotee uh, is, uh, we give him a stamp of approval. He needs to have vegetarian food. So they might get a little few extra sorts of beans and rice. Perhaps they get a little hunk of cheese. Uh, but it's pretty slim pickings if you're in a, in a prison cell trying to practice Krishna consciousness. And all the prisoners that I write to, um, they've given up intoxication and illicit sex, which, believe it or not, is rampantly available in the prison, if you can imagine that even being possible. You have guards who are colluding with prisoners, bringing drugs into the cells, and there's all kinds of other really awful activities that happen inside a prison. Basically, these prisoners are living like animals in cages, and sadly, their consciousness often descends to the level of animals as well. There's so many, uh, with the association of so many low-minded people and with an environment that's filthy, uh, both physically and spiritually, uh, it's almost impossible to climb out of the mode of ignorance. But devotee prisoners that I am writing to and sending books to, they are saying that because the, ho- the holy name is so powerful, uh, they have the strength to overcome um, these animalistic propensities. Another prisoner that I write uh, has been in prison for 35 years. He's about 70 years old, lost all his teeth because the food is so bad, you can't take care of it, it's awful. And um, he was a Vietnam veteran who suffered severe head trauma and uh, also post-traumatic stress syndrome. And when he returned to the United States, he was discharged from the military service. When he was discharged, it was really difficult for him to differentiate between legal killing, which which a soldier is trained to do, and murder. I mean, it was just such a blur. You You were a killing machine, that's all you did. So when he was discharged, it was natural for him to just simply kill if somebody bothered him, intimidated him, attacked him. He was just sort of, you know, triggered to do that because he was trained to do that. And uh, the whole mindset was survive at all costs. Just me first, try to survive. And even if if somebody just threatened him a little bit, he would uh, try to kill them. But after practicing Krishna consciousness in prison, uh, but just simply chanting and hearing about Krishna, worshipping the deity, at one point he was able to have a Gornitai deity within the prison. After some time, the, the guards became envious and they actually uh, smashed them. And so he decided that no longer he would uh, risk having a deity in the prison. But they noticed after some time with him chanting sincerely, and uh, reading Srimad Bhagavatam, uh, the guards noticed that when he was attacked, and interestingly enough, even though prisoners are not allowed to have weapons, they make weapons out of all kinds of stuff. You know, they will take a popsicle stick or some kind of thing and they will rub it on the concrete long periods of time until now they have a sharp point, 
which is like an arrowhead, or they'll find a wire or something in their sock and make some kind of a thing, um, or something that came on their cafeteria plate, and they'll make a weapon. And the guards noticed that when some people would attack him from behind, you know, they, they had this propensity also to, to hurt other people. And um, this particular prison who was chanting and hearing uh, for prolonged periods of time, when a person would attack him, even from behind, I mean, you could almost, you'd have to be so quick to notice that someone is attacking you from behind. He was, he was quick enough, and he had the presence of mind uh, and focus enough from the chanting that he could grab the person's arm and, and throw the weapon out before he could hurt him, and he wouldn't retaliate. He would just walk away. And the guards were amazed at that because formerly he would, he would attack the back. It would become an enormous fight of two people trying to kill each other. And so they noticed that from his prolonged periods of hearing and chanting, he no longer was reactive, but he could respond in, a, in an intentional way. So um, this particular prisoner has, been, has started writing books about Krishna. He has little paperbacks books that he calls mystic something or other. He has different parts of it. And Chandramali Swami, if you know who that is, he's uh, very involved in prison ministry. He has started to publish his books in India and then redistribute them to the prisoners. Currently, he's writing, uh, for me, a little handbook for prisoners who uh, are trying to cope to practice Krishna consciousness. They're in different cells, so he's writing a handbook how he has survived and, and lived as a devotee in the temple. I mean, in the prisons, <laughs> which is the, the prison house of Matilda. So we also have so many examples in Prabhupada's books of persons who are materially unqualified uh, be, become dramatically changed by simply taking up this process of devotional service. For example, I like this story of Narada Muni when he is walking in the forest or in the jungle and he comes across a deer that's lying on the path quivering because it has been shot dead, half dead. It's been pierced by an arrow and the, the deer is uh, twisting and writhing in pain. And then he walks a little further and he comes to uh, a boar, another animal, and he's pierced also, halfway dead and he's flapping because he's dying, but he's not dead yet, and he's just suffering so much. And then he comes, I think, to a rabbit, and he sees the same thing. And Narada Muni, he, he, as he walks, he starts to see there's a hunter over there by a tree. He's hiding behind a tree, getting ready, you know, with his bow and arrow to kill some more animals. And um, Narada Muni walks up to this hunter, and he says, are you responsible for these half-dead animals that I'm encountering along the path? And the hunter says, um, yes, that's me, that's what I do. And he said, why are you killing them halfway? Why don't you just kill them completely? This is, this is so cruel. And he said, well, my name is Magrari. I'm the enemy of animals, and my father taught me how to kill in this way. When I see half-killed animals suffer, I feel a great deal of pleasure. If you can imagine somebody enjoying There are people, in fact, who enjoy... It's a, it's a sadistic taste. You see children who rip off wings of birds or they take, just for fun, they'll mash uh, insects or rip their wings off. Uh, there's, there's a kind of horrible taste some people have for hellish enjoyment. So Narada Muni um, says to the hunter, uh, 
you know, your business as a hunter is to kill animals. That's not such a big offense. But that you consciously give them pain uh, by leaving them half dead, you're incurring for yourself many, many sins because you're, you're intentionally trying to cause suffering from the, uh, for another living being. And he says you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to pay some consequences for these sinful activities. It's not that that just you're killing these animals or half killing them that you're not going to get any kind of reaction for that. You are going to have to pay in kind because that's the law of karma. If you cause suffering to others, then you will be put in a situation where you will have to experience the suffering or similar suffering that you have caused another person. It really boils down to learning to become compassionate, which is the essence of Krishna consciousness, is that if you are not compassionate on someone perhaps that is disabled or disfigured, or who is poor, who is ugly, or something, I mean, we're always criticizing mine, he's always trying to find fault, but if you actually are uncompassionate for people that you see, then the law of karma says, well, in order to help you, to become more compassionate. Now you have to experience what this person has experienced that you are not compassionate for. So Narada Muni is trying to get him to understand the, the cost of the suffering that he's causing these animals. And finally the hunter admitted, yeah, I'm, I'm committing sinful activities, but I've been taught that from my childhood. And so now I want to be freed from these sinful activities because I'm afraid of the consequences. So Narada Muni, please tell me how I can become free from my sinful, uh, the reactions of my sinful activities. And Narada Muni assured him that if you just listen to my instructions, you'll find a way to become liberated. So the, the hunter, he says to Narada Muni, whatever you say, I'm going to do it. And uh, so Narada Muni says, first you have to break your bow, and then I, sh- I shall tell you what to do next. And the hunter says, but if I break my bow, how will I maintain myself? That's my li- livelihood. And uh, Narada Muni, he says, don't worry. I shall send people to you every day uh, with food. Don't worry. So the, so the hunter, he broke his bow, and he immediately fell down to the lotus feet of Narada Muni, and he surrendered his life. And um, Narada Muni raised him up, accepting him as his disciple. And then Narada Muni advised him, you go home and you uh, distribute all your riches, whatever money you have and whatever belongings you have. You give them to the pure brahmanas who know the absolute truth. And then you, um, you leave home with your wife. You take only one cloth with you. And you leave your home and you go to the river and you make a little cottage for you and your wife to live in. And you, uh, you establish a tulsi, you grow a tulsi plant on a raised platform. And you start to worship the tulsi plant and circumambulate and give water every day and chant the Hare Krishna Maha Mantra in front of the tulsi plant. And he said, don't worry, I will send you food to both, both you and your wife every day. You can take as much food as you want and so immediately Narada Muni brought those three animals, the deer, the rabbit, and the boar, back to a healed condition, and the hunter went home. 
So after some time, you know, when the people of the village saw that this hunter, who had everybody knew he was just a vicious person, he had started to change, that he had become a Vaishnava, everybody was so amazed. They were just like, oh my God, I don't even know how to compare that to uh, Jagai and Mare, perhaps, or somebody here in the modern day Australia. There's probably all kinds of hulks and curmudgeons here in LA, uh, not LA, but in Melbourne, that you might say are comparable to this hunter. And then, or a neighbor that you know who's an alcoholic or is, uh, is a violent abuser of some kind, uh, beats up people or beats up his family. And suddenly they become a devotee and they notice that they have changed. And um, so the people were so amazed that they would just bring him food and supplies. Like Ten or twenty people would come, bringing him and his wife uh, food to eat. So he never had any problem with food. In fact, he said, I don't need so much food. Maybe just a little bit for me and my wife. Please don't bring any more food. Uh, just what we need. So later on, Narada Muni, he says to his friend Parvati Muni, let's go see my disciple, see how he's doing. And when Narada Muni approached this cottage, uh, the, his disciple, Magari, he comes running out in excitement to see his spiritual master. And he wants to fall down and offer his obeisances, but he can't because there's ants on the ground running around and he doesn't want to step on them or he's afraid he will squash them. He's become so aware of living beings all over the place. So he's, he's very careful. He's kind of you know, trying to avoid. If you've ever gone barefoot in a, in a forest and you see bugs everywhere, it's, a, it's not easy to avoid them. So uh, he starts to take, he takes his cloth off and he starts to sweep away the, uh, gently the bugs, the, the ants, so he doesn't step on them. And then he falls flat and he offers his obeisances. And Narada Muni, he says to uh, Parvati, Parvati Muni, uh, just see that when a person becomes a devotee of Krishna, he automatically develops wonderful qualities like nonviolence. Um, they never, a person who is a devotee of Krishna doesn't ever want to cause pain, knowingly or unknowingly, to another living being. Not just human beings, but another living being. And so suddenly his wife comes out with a, with a pitcher and a bowl, and they wash Narayanuri's feet, and they drink the Charnarita, the bathing water. And the hunter becomes so ecstatic in love for Krishna as he chants the Hare Krishna mantra and worships his spiritual master that tears come to his eyes and his body begins to shake. He's so ecstatic. And Parvata Muni, he sees the loving ecstatic ecstasy of his disciple and he tells Narada Muni, certainly you are a touchstone. My dear friend, you are glorified as the sage of all the demigods. By your mercy, even a low-born person like this hunter can immediately become attached to Lord Krishna. And Narada Muni asks the hunter, My dear Vaishnava, do you have some income for your maintenance? How are you maintaining yourself? And the hunter says, My, my dear spiritual master, I have all that I need. Whoever comes to, seize me, to see me brings me something. So please don't sin so much. It's more than I can... I can um, accept. So this is such a beautiful story, and there's so many others in Prabhupada's books about the influence, the impact of having Vaishnava association. Even one Vaishnava 
who you can associate with can have the power to transform your life. And Prabhupada comments after this story that the reason why Chaitanya Mahaprabhu told this story is because he wanted to stress that even the lowest of, of people, uh, like a hunter, could become the topmost Vaishnava simply by associating with uh, Narada Muni or a devotee coming in the line of disciple succession. So these are just some, some examples uh, to show the power of devotional service. The second point that Prabhupada is making in the purport is that uh, Lord Chaitanya requested everyone, everyone, to preach the path of bhakti yoga all over the world in every town and village. In the Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, 30-37, Prabhupada explains, there are two kinds of devotees. One is called the Gosyanandi, and the other is the Bhajananandi. The word Bhajananandi refers to the devotee who does not uh, move, but remains in one place. Uh, such a devotee, they're always engaged in devotional service. Uh, they chant the Maha Mantra, uh, and they go out sometimes for preaching work. That's kind of our life here. I, I suppose you would describe that as what we do in the Hare Krishna movement, and living in the temple, coming to programs, we worship, we do service, and sometimes we go out for preaching. And then the Gostianadi is one who desires to increase the number of devotees all over the world, so he travels, he or she travels all over the world just to purify the world uh, by... Uh, helping raise the consciousness of the people in the world. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu advised Priti Viti Achinyata Nagaradi Gram Sarvatra Pachara Haide Mora Nam. And Lord Chaitanya, uh, Prabhupada was obviously coming the line of Lord Chaitanya, so he's repeating the message that uh, Lord Chaitanya wanted all of his followers uh, to go out into every town and village and uh, and to even travel all over the world if necessary. I'd say there's probably enough people in Melbourne to preach to. You may not even have to go anywhere. You just have to go out uh, and, and reach out to people to spread the message of Bhagavad Gita. And um, this was Prabhupada's mood when he came to the West. We didn't have temples. We didn't have beautiful deity worship. We had pictures, maybe a Panchatattva picture. And he would send even the youngest devotee out. It was the first thing. It's like, well, I don't know anything. What am I going to say to people? I don't know anything. And uh, just go out and tell what you know. I mean, you were attracted, there must be something. You can say Krishna is God. You can say that much. And, um, and so, so they would go out, and sometimes they would not know how to answer. You know, materialistic people say, well, what is this? What is that? And they wouldn't know. Well, they'd have to come home and then read some more. So they could answer the questions, and they'd go back out. And this way their spiritual life would grow more and more. And this was the mood, and when I joined the Hare Krishna movement in Germany, that everybody would read every day and then go to someone and share what they'd read. If they couldn't go out to share it out on the street, they would tell, instead of telling what you heard, the gossip about somebody else, you were telling, what did I read today? Ah, I read this in Bhagavad Gita. You know what Prabhupada said today? You know what uh, he said in the Bhagavatam? I was so inspired to hear that. Let me share that with you. And then by sharing it with other people, the person who's sharing it, their heart becomes filled with joy, but also the people that they tell it to becomes filled with joy as well. So this is practice. This is part of our sadhana to repeat what we've heard. It's it's a really important way that we elevate ourselves, but also that we invoke 
a spiritual environment around us. Um, Srila Prabhupada explains in the purport, the more the devotees preach the principles of Krishna Kata, the more the people throughout the world will benefit. So this is a little open secret. It's really about vibrating transcendental sound and engaging in talks about Krishna because you're hearing and speaking and other people are hearing and speaking. If we don't do something with what we read, the information doesn't kind of go anywhere. It goes in and goes out. You have to chew it a little bit by explaining it to somebody or writing something. Even if you sit home, you can write articles to the newspaper about a topic or a magazine and, and try to explain to other, others. Otherwise, that knowledge really never becomes realized knowledge if you don't do something with it. Um, you have to be um, yeah, explaining it or uh, writing something about it. And Prabhupada wanted devotees to, um, they wanted very much devotees to write their realizations. Uh, and if you notice your day, if you go throughout your day, um, you will notice that Krishna shows up all kinds of places besides the Bhagavatam class, besides the deity room. Sometimes someone will say something, even a non-devotee will say something, and it'll, uh, it'll be something maybe addressing something you're working on, and you realize, ah, Krishna said that for me. And in this way, everybody becomes your teacher. If you're listening, something happens. You're seeing something happening in the road, and you're thinking, oh, that's such a good example of, of Kali Yuga. Let me remember that. Let me be inspired not to go that path. And let me share that uh, to other people, what I've learned. So uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, in this endeavor, endeavor there is no loss or diminution. And a little advancement on this path can protect one from the most dangerous type of fear. So in the past week or more, we've been talking about how people in the materialistic consciousness, how afraid they are of getting old and diseased and death. That's been the theme in almost every verse. How by the power of time as we grow old and we get diseased and we die, there's a lot of fear. And people put this off their whole life, not, not leaning into the fact that death is imminent at any moment. But for a devotee who's absorbed their minds in hearing and chanting, they're not afraid. Because they know the body may break down, as long as you have it from neck up. You may be in a wheelchair, you may be paralyzed from the neck down. If you can just have your ears in your mouth, you can still make progress. Uh, you can still glorify Krishna and feel ecstasy. Um, and even uh, we've had devotees who have been deaf. That was a, we have a group of devotees who are deaf. And of course the question is, how do you make people uh, be Krishna conscious who can't hear? How do they do that? But they do it with their hands. They do it with their heart. Um, and they're able to understand by the power of body language. And it's just amazing. You know, the sound vibration also gets in your cells. Uh, uh, you know, animals benefit. They can't practice reading Bhagavatam, but they benefit from prasadam. So everybody, everybody can join this Hare Krishna movement. So I'm going to stop here, and um, thank you very much, and see if there's any questions or comments or even a reflection, uh, what you might take away with you today that you'll remember. Anybody? Yes. <clears throat> Have you heard of cases where the devotees in jail were prevented from chanting? Uh, no, I haven't. 
I mean, there, there may be cases. I only have about six prisoners. But uh, obviously people think they're weird. I mean, they will go, if there's a couple, I have one, in, one group in San Quentin, there's about three. I started with one, some, they bumped into somebody in the yard, you know, noticed that they're reading above, and then they, they found another one. Um, and the three of them will sit and sometimes chant or sing. And the other prisoners are like, ah, oh, that's so weird when he's singing. But other prisoners are attracted, you know, and actually, we're weird, you're weird, you're weirder than us, weird. And uh, I haven't heard of them saying you can't, you know, because why, why can a person not sing? It's certainly better than stabbing somebody with a popsicle stick or something, you know. But no, I don't know. There may be anything else, you know? Yes. My grandmother, the other when you go to the hospital, he's speaking to the patients. Ah, nice. Yes. Yes. He goes for his chanting in the bush. He says, all the people are here. Yes. As you said, the whole atmosphere is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Whatever goes out comes also back. That's you right. know, whatever you're putting out, even if you're in the forest, sing for the trees, sing for the grass. Next lifetime, they will have an opportunity maybe to take a human birth and they got Krishna consciousness. Anything else? Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Thank you for the inspiring class. You're welcome. Um, it was very encouraging to hear you uh, share uh, that out of the nine processes, uh, if due to unforeseen circumstances, you don't have opportunities for any of the other uh, eight, you know, like association because you're in some geographical location or due to a disability or personality nature, which we spoke about a while ago. So even just holding on steadfastly to one can uh, keep you steadily on the path. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, back to God. But I think the key thing would be sincerity, like just picking, okay, let's say chanting, just sticking to chanting, doing it sincerely, even if other things don't work to your favor for any reason, that would suffice. You're saying you can do that, yeah. Of course, we want to stress how beneficial it is to be able to associate. You know, you you can chant and chant and chant, but I, I personally find my spiritual life is so enhanced by coming before the deities. I mean, look what you've got here, this this oasis in, in Melbourne. <laughs> you all have such this incredible environment. It's too bad it's not bigger. You need to have a, a big temple room that you can fit everybody in. But I mean, you all have one of the most pucka deity worships I've seen in the in the uh, movement. It's amazing, and the outfits and the, the opulence of flowers and the smells and yeah. I mean, why would you deprive yourself of of that? I mean, you want to move across the street so that you can have this. It's possible, but if you can, you can always tune in. You've got a camera going. You can you can participate if you're in sick. Some people are sick; they can't come, or they live too far away. You can always tune in. Not only in Melbourne, when I'm in LA or in Washington D.C., I often tune in and see what you guys are doing in Melbourne, Jen. or I tune in for Mangalarti in Los Angeles uh, or somewhere. Well, I'll go to Mayapur. You can just flick of the switch. So. so hearing and chanting Shravanam and Smaranam is something that we shouldn't let go of. Okay, the reason I'm asking the context is I have a friend who's of a different faith 
ah. and who is getting into Krishna consciousness mm-hmm. and uh, due to circumstances he's in Singapore so there isn't there, there, there is a center but association is not as dynamic uh, as Melbourne <coughs> we, do, we, we, we do take Melbourne as an example and secondly his family and friends may not uh, at this stage understand what's going on the transition mm-hmm. so given these kind of scenarios this is an example a case study mm-hmm. then hearing and chanting if deity worship devotee association is scarce family and friends he is not getting as much association so uh, you know prashadam yes to a certain degree but hearing and chanting then becomes very important it yeah, always is important and mm-hmm. Krishna if a person is sincere if they just start, Krishna will start to give them ideas how they can do more. You know, they'll, they'll start to yearn for association and, and perhaps find a way. I mean, it's really about desire. And so it, it took me, when I met the devotees, I was 15, um, and I met Prabhupada through a book. But I didn't actually move into the temple or take it up and become initiated until I was 21 or so. So sometimes it takes a while. Prabhupada was, he knew Bhakti Siddhanta about 11 years before he actually was able to, you know, formally surrender his life. So, you know, fan the spark, whatever people can do. Yeah, okay. keep because it's an eternal process. Yeah, okay. yeah. Thank you, Mataji. Yeah. Yes. As you know, poor Kumaras got smelled with flowers in incense and we don't know they became devotees just from smelling the incense. Yeah, and that was understandable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You were mentioning how many joined in the early days that the Buddhists were always asking each other, or what did you read in Prabhupada's books today, and this whole culture was there. So, like, for me, sometimes now it appears that the culture, it's not, the culture is not the same, the culture has changed. Mm-hmm. It's changed. People do it, you don't always speak what we read in Prabhupada's books. So, what is it, like, like how, what is there any hope that, what can we do to? Well, you do it. You don't have to depend on other people to do that. If you're excited about something you read, say, grab somebody. Say, you know, this is what I read today. <laughs> Sometimes, I've had the experience, I'm an educator myself, and um, I have students, and one of the questions, I ask them every week, they're writing weekly reflections. And an important question to ask yourself and to ask others, it's one reason at the end of the class, I'll say, what are, what are, you, what are you taking away? What have you learned that will uh, go with you when you leave? But the question I ask all the time, this is really important, is what are you learning? You know, you can tell me all kinds of stuff. But the question is, what are you learning? If a person's behavior is not changing due to what they're hearing and studying, they're not really learning. Because learning means change. So if you, you, you keep bumping into the wall and not going through the door, and every day you do that, it means you're not learning that the door is over here, like two feet at that side. You, you understand what I'm saying? If you keep doing what you're doing, you'll keep getting what you're getting. So if you don't like the world you've created for yourself, then you have to make a new choice. You have to do something different to make it different. So if you find you're a little bit dry and maybe your association isn't as Krishna conscious as you'd like to do, make it Krishna conscious. You be the, you be the catalyst. Introduce it. There's no reason why you can't be the fool that's ecstatically talking about Krishna. Who cares what other people think? You're ecstatic. Mm-hmm. You know, they may think you're not. That's all right. 
Who are you, who are you here to please? You know, Krishna loves you anyway. Doesn't matter what other people think. It's just love Krishna. And it becomes contagious. You know, whether you're a downer, if you have a negative kind of vibration, people are like this contagious too. A person who's always criticizing or who's envious of other people or backbiting something. If you're smart, you kind of move away. Or you introduce something else into the environment uh, instead of toxins. Yeah, there's a question over here, Gavin. Yeah. Uh, how do younger patients in Alabama need to probably be in a letter writing and these people, you know, there is no sign that they're going to reciprocate? Or if they do, it's going to be really gradual and steady. How do you keep yourself enthusiastic when the outcome is going to be very, very yeah, we don't know what the outcome is. And, and uh, bhakti yoga needs to, to let go of the attachment to the outcome. Um, like parents, they, they spend so much energy trying to raise children. It's very slow. You know, one year, two year, three year, four year. And you don't know if they're going to turn out. They may not live even until they're 20. But you've done your duty. And so on the order of Narada Muni and Bhakti Siddhanta and Bhakti Muntakar, we do our duty. And, okay, people take it, they don't take it. That's not my problem. I'm just doing my duty. And there's a certain satisfaction and joy we get by just doing our duty. You know, people don't take it, that's okay. We don't know if they take it. In fact, if you talk to people who come to the movement, um, like we go out on Harinam in uh, L.A. We have a really big Harinam program. And, um, you know, it's been going on for 50 years. And you have, sometimes when you're going down the street during Harnam, you'll see the mother's got a child in her hand and the kid wants to hang out. They, they, she's pulling them away. They stop and they want to be parked. And they have to drag the kid away. Twenty years later, that very child comes and says, you know, I, when I was, saw you guys doing Harnam and my mother wouldn't let me stay. We've had a lot of devotees who, who were children and you think, oh, well, they're wasting time, but... You just don't know. You have no idea what seeds you're planting. So you, you have seeds you plant, then you water those seeds by continuing to uh, uh, chant and hear or uh, spread Krishna Gita, and then you harvest. You have to pick the fruits. But you have to be patient only because uh, you have no other choice. You can't control the outcome, and it doesn't really matter. You benefit. It's you that benefits from preaching. Whether anybody else does or not, you benefit. If you don't preach, Maya's preaching to you. So it's either you're preaching to Maya or she's preaching to you. So it's your self-defense. The only way. Anything else? Can I ask a question that's perhaps not so relevant to the younger devotees that um, the king of the elders is embracing old age. Yeah. Old age to the instructions Narada Muni and that we need to put this into practice as devotees too that we need to use our own experience of old age as a preaching tool ideally Is that a question or just a reflection? I'm not sure what it is I just tried to get it out is So let's, let me just make sure Okay, you were saying that as for, as an older person like myself and your student as we're getting older, that we should use this uh, aware, death awareness or this old age awareness as a preaching tool? 
And how might we do that? Um, we might do that by understanding by Krishna, by Vodichilamans and Vodichatamans, and we see that, that we are not the body, that the body is a tool to use in Krishna's service. Yeah. So you can do what we can. You know, right up until the end. We saw Prabhupada translating books on his deathbed. He was if you look I think even that is on YouTube, you can see Prabhupada's last hours. And uh, he was translating right up until the last minute. A good example for us that in any condition we can vibrate the glories of Krishna. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, fight on the battlefield. Yeah, right. Just keep going. Better to die on the battlefield. Yeah, that's right. You guarantee. Yeah. Um, not yet. I have only one prisoner of the six that I'm writing that, that will get out in April. And uh, he lives near Los Angeles. I will connect him with my son, and he will be able to take it up. He's very, he's very, very enthusiastic about Tom. I've sent a whole set to his uh, his mother's house, and when he gets out, he will go home and have a whole crop of books. But sadly, uh, several of the ones I'm writing are... They've been in 20, 30 years, they probably will never get out. It's very difficult once you get in, even if you have, have proven yourself over and over that you, you're a changed person. It's such a bureaucratic system, you almost never, even you're worthy to get out. Uh, one, one of the persons that I'm writing has been in and out of jail since he's your age, practically. And, you know, when he gets out, there's nothing to do, there's nobody, you know, to help. And uh, he was stealing. He was with a group of other uh, teenagers, and they robbed a house. And the teenagers ran away, and he was like 14, and he was caught. So they put him in a juvenile prison for a few years, and then he got out. And he didn't know how to manage, because he had no education. So he got back in, and I think they they let him out a little later, and he he got out and didn't know how to manage, and so he back in. But since that time, now he's 70, so he's been in a long time, right? And he, he, uh, he has so many regrets, but he has taken, he got an award last year for taking every educational opportunity in San Quentin. They, you can get your master's degree, you can get your bachelor's degree, they have quite a sophisticated education program. And he goes to every religious service, he goes and worships with Christians, he worships with the Sikhs, he worships with the Hare Krishna. <laughs> and they gave him an award for like attending 75 different... And you would think, well, that would be already proof enough. This guy, he takes advantage of everything. And when, when they come up for parole, which doesn't happen but every couple of years, all the, all the wardens do is show, point out your faults. They don't give you any mercy. It's a terrible, broken system. Because there's so many, many people in there have uh, amazing realizations because they have suffered so much. And I think that's probably the price we pay for self-realizations that we've suffered. You know, people who are compassionate are usually people who have themselves suffered and they don't want other people to suffer too. So don't get in jail. 
It's hard to get out. <laughs> yeah, anything else? Well, thank you for the nice thoughts, but in relation to Prabhu's question for the preaching, um, I'm not sure if I'm just like, I've correctly understood this. I've heard that when you preach, it's being compassionate, right? But to actually want a result from your preaching is attachment. Uh, I don't know if that's fair. Well, we used to have something called transcendental competition. You know, Robin liked that. He would he would go to one temple and and glorify. Like I was in Germany, and then we had always this competition going on with the French devotees. You know, and Robin stressed different things. In Germany, people were very anal and clean. You know, German people are really organized. I mean, if you have a, I was in the Brahmacharya Ashram, you leave the door open, if there's one hair in the sink, I mean, that would be a big deal. So he didn't stress deity worship in Germany so much as far as being clean and organized, because they already had too much of that going on. He was very much pushing book distribution. When he went to France, they were not so organized, and they were not so very clean. They were very great, good decorators of the deity, but not real. So he pushed that. So there was always this argument because Prabhupada would go to different places and tell something different. So um, there's kind of a transcendental competition also when we all started to do book distribution. And um, he liked that because it inspired people to do better. But when you start to become angry and envious and uh, competitive for the sake of uh, me first and I'm great, then it can't be good. You know, it can't be good. But what he was really talking about sounded like like writing somebody or trying to cultivate somebody, even who comes to the temple for a long time. You know, you have guests who come and you think, oh, they don't seem to make any movement. It's the same thing. They come, they, you know, they do this, they eat some of the prasad and go away. But you don't know what Krishna is doing with them. So you're right. We really need to uh, let Krishna be in charge and be his servant and do what he says and let him take it. Maybe they join in another place. That happens. They come here, get inspired, then they go to New Zealand and they join there and you see them ten years later. So being bhakti means not being attached to the result. To it. Anything else? I was just wondering. Oh, yes. Um, when I heard Sudhaku was saying that Sudhaku is not the ends and the living search good. Absolutely. And I was just wondering, um, can they hear? Can ants hear? You're asking me that question? <laughs> How do they get benefited? The chanting of Hare Krishna is transcendental sound vibration. It's a vibration, okay? So hearing for an ant may not go through the ears like it does for you, but I know deaf people... I've asked them this question, that uh, they, you know, they, it's not that they don't hear, it's a vibration that, that they, they can experience through their body. So I would imagine ants may not hear like you do, but grass and trees, they absorb the vibration. For a deaf person, they have described um, the sound of the wind, like when they, when they hold, touch a tree, there's a kind of a groaning, deep vibration that they get. It's like we hear it, hear that in our body. It's not coming through our ears. So uh, there's even deaf people who can write music or play music uh, from the vibration that they feel 
in the core of their self, but it's not coming through the ears. Yeah. So different. You'd have to be deaf to know how to do that. Yeah. This is just a comment. Okay. Um, I have a friend in Queensland, and he would never kill anything. And when we go visiting, ants and mosquitoes always went to everybody, but they never ever came to him. Interesting. Never ever. Interesting. Amazing. Yeah, and I know having lived in India, um, where ants, um, mosquitoes are everywhere, I learned uh, from the rich Vasis in Vrindavan, they often would sleep on the roof without mosquito nets. And during the summer, what I found out was they eat a lot of neem, because they say mosquitoes will eat, will, will be attracted to people who eat a lot of sugar, you know? So their antidote was you eat a lot of bitter stuff, particularly during the summer months when you have mosquitoes. But I don't, maybe he wasn't a sugar eater. <laughs> or maybe, maybe they didn't he was a nonviolent person. I think that was your point, right? That was my point, yeah. 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 Uh, to this day, it still amazes me. Yeah. Truly. Yeah, super soul, perhaps. I know George Harrison once stayed in our ashram in Vrindavan, my husband and I had a Prabhupada Ashram near the temple. And uh, we were all in a tizzy because you have George Harrison coming to stay. And um, we put one of those mosquito electric ones and they kind of they kind of repel mosquitoes with a buzz. It's a vibration. And I suspect they killed it. It kills them. I don't know. But we were afraid that George Harrison would be uncomfortable. So we put one of those in his room. And when he saw that he said, I couldn't sleep all night. I was in so much anxiety that these poor mosquitoes were being hurt by this thing. Such a compassionate person George Harrison was. He was amazing. So, yeah. Sorry, Melanie. I was going to ask you, like, when everybody's talking about ads and everything, and how like, but then in a scenario where there's, like, for example, in the kitchen and stuff where they just continuously come in a club, how do you, like, not touch from the pan and Oh, very Yeah. It's just hard to control. Yeah, it's a hard thing. It's a challenge. Uh, she's asking for anybody who couldn't hear her question that, you know, how do you, how do you not harm animal, like insects and ants and stuff in the kitchen when you're trying to cook and that doesn't go in the food, right? Um, you just have to be really careful. Obviously, sometimes they get in the food. It's during bee season. We have a kind of a bee season where you have lots of bees who tend to come near heat. And sometimes they fall in the food. Sometimes they get in the, the thing. You just have to endeavor to not harm. Um, if, as far as I know, that if you are engaged in, in trying to do service to Krishna, if you accidentally harm an insect, like you're stepping on an ant or something happens accidentally, they get drowned in the water. In some ways they benefit because they've died in the service of Krishna. You know, it's a different thing if you're just stomping around and, and going to the cinema or you're going to a restaurant and you're not you're you're completely ignorant. But the fact that you're aware and you're carefully trying not to harm, that's a different consciousness. And I would say there's probably not big karmic reaction for that. It's, in the story of the hunter, Narayana acknowledged, you're killing animals and you're a hunter. That's your profession. That's what you do. What is so sinful is that you're intending to hurt. 
So if you accidentally harm an insect, not wanting to, uh, and maybe even seeing that you have harm, sometimes there's a cockroach that's like on his back, you know, and you know he's going to die, but there's an ant in the toilet who's on his way out, you know, and you can't seem to fish him out, which is sometimes what you do. And uh, at least chant for him, chant for him, you know, at least they get a better destination. But it's the intention that is so sinful, is that I'm not. I, like like in West in Western America, you have all the time these fly, fly swatters. You know, my family does it. You know, people do it. And they fly buzzing around it. You know, they're going. You know, and they're they're just and then they're wiping they're wiping it on their clothes. You know, I, you see that all the time. That's different than not wanting to hurt a fly. I mean, I'm I'm aghast. I'm aghast. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, won't get started. Anything else? Not not hurting the not hurting the insect. But we have a story how the Yamaraj became Vidura because he was cursed by a sage who accidentally in his childhood hurt an insect by cutting by piercing the Was was it accidental as a child, this piercing? I'm not I don't I don't have a fresh memory of this story. I know the story, but I don't know if he accidentally did it or if he was a child playing and he deliberately did it. Who knows that story of, of Vidura? Accidentally. Accidentally. I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I mean, that's a different case. I don't know. Sometimes he was playing. Playing. So he was playing with an insect. Yeah, they wanted to cut. Yeah, I'll have to look at that story and tell you tomorrow. I don't know. Maybe you could look at it and it doesn't. But I, I do think it has a lot to do with intention. And sometimes children don't know what they're doing, and they don't intend, but they're not also intending to help. Jane, Janes are very conscious of not harming, and they wear these masks and they don't breathe, and they don't wear eggplant uh, because they're afraid there's bugs in the, in the seeds. Bhakti yoga takes it a step further. We don't harm, but we help. We try to help. So it's one thing to avoid harm, but we also have to think, how can we best help them? So I'm not sure children are conscious always of that. You know, they may be playing and accidentally harm an animal, and that can be a lesson for them that their parents can perhaps help correct. And I think parents take the karma of children at a certain age, under five, I think, the, the children are not getting karma, but the parents are getting the karma. So I don't know the situation with the, the uh, piercing with the blade. I see it's time to stop for breakfast. See the problem I want to thank everybody for your hospitality being here. I'm leaving on Thursday. It has been so wonderful being here and that you've tolerated me for such a long time. And um, so I hope to see you again sometime. Thank you.